I'm Joni Guzman with the American Heart Association. We all know that stroke is a leading cause of death and disability. Together, we can change that. Join the American Heart Association and the Montana Stroke Initiative for a series of podcasts covering guideline-based stroke care from pre-hospital through acute treatment and even into post-acute care to learn more about timely, effective treatment guidelines and best practice sharing. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. Hi, welcome to Montana Fast Chats. My name is Piper Kometz. I'm a stroke RN in Bozeman, Montana. And today on our show, we have Steve Schmidt, who is the customer service manager and medic for um, Life Flight, also out of Bozeman, Montana. So welcome, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me, Piper. Thanks for being here. Um, so we're going to talk about stroke today. We're going to talk about stroke uh, from a life flight and EMS perspective. So, Steve, I kind of wanted to rope you into this because really you guys see stroke patients in all different um, all different time frames along their st- acute stroke path, don't you? Because you'll see them pre-hospital sometimes and also in a transfer. Is that correct? We do. That is correct. Yeah, we can, uh, you know, we can respond to a scene and pick somebody up from their house or off the river or something that is exhibiting uh, stroke symptoms. Uh, so we can be kind of that first uh, access to this system, or we can be seen later, you know, doing transfers uh, when they are, you know, if they're evaluated and then they need further care uh, than what varying levels of facility are able to to provide. And so let's kind of focus on the pre-hospital care first. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I was just looking at our Bozeman stroke registry numbers, and we have about 30% of our stroke patients come in to the hospital via EMS, and then about 70% of them actually come in private vehicle. Um, I think we both would like to have more and more public education and and awareness about activating the EMS system for stroke symptoms. Can you talk a little bit about why EMS is so important to activate when you're having a stroke rather than toughing it out and getting in your private vehicle? I wouldn't love to. Um, Yeah, we see that a lot, you know, as well uh, when we pick folks up, you know, when we get the report of how they got there. Um, And I don't think that that's just set to, to Bozeman. I mean, I think that's kind of across the board. And There's a lot of things that EMS is able to do. Um, You know, I can completely understand the the general mindset to just get in the car and race to the hospital and don't wait for the ambulance. Um, But there are benefits of contacting the ambulance and the EMS system, uh, you know, or in remote areas, uh, it can get kicked over to to the helicopter to get you. So uh, as we know, time is of the essence when it comes to stroke. Uh, EMS providers of all levels uh, are trained to recognize the signs and symptoms of stroke. Um, So they're able to work down through their algorithms and determine, uh, is this something that's going to qualify for uh, a stroke alert? Uh, And then they can start that process getting the patient into the system. So there's a lot of things that have been developed throughout the years uh, especially in the past couple of years have been really great with development uh, in care and, and recognition. But the EMS folks uh, can are able to get the IV started. 
uh, they can go ahead and start doing things that will be done in the hospital, um, but they can go ahead and get it done while they're en route, as well as notifying the hospital that there is a potential stroke coming in. And what this does is it allows the hospital to prepare uh, to be able to accept that patient and to be able uh, to minimize time for the initial evaluation. Uh, it gives them time to activate a stroke team, potentially, depending on the hospital. Uh, it gives them time to clear the CT scanner uh, so that if there was somebody else that was getting ready to go in that was not as emergent, uh, you know, they may delay putting them in there uh, and then causing a further delay to that patient. So as we know, the other purpose of this CT scan is to take a look and see, you know, is it a bleed or is it a clot uh, type of stroke? And is it going to be a can, is the patient going to be a candidate for uh, thrombolytic therapy uh, or not? Uh, additionally, the EMS folks, uh, when they get there, they may be able to, depending on where they are, they may be able to make a determination of what facility they're going to go to. So if you are 20 minutes from a facility that does not have CT scanner, uh, does not have the ability to administer thrombolytics uh, or any of that, um, they may choose the facility that's 30 minutes away uh, because in the long-term event of this individual stroke, it's still taking time out um, from, you know, that delay. Because once they're into that original hospital system that may not have that capability, now they have the onus and they have the responsibility that they have to find an accepting, they have to arrange a transfer. And depending on where they're at, you know, that could be <clears throat> potentially hours. Um, as we know, there's a window, a time window that the thrombolytics can be given. Um, so essentially, you know, somebody going to the, the wrong hospital per se, that doesn't have that capability, um, you know, it could mean the difference of whether or not they're eligible for, for thrombolytics. So there are a lot of things that EMS is able to do, uh, knowing the resources in the area, being able to do the stroke alert, being able to save time by getting the IV started. Um, in Bozeman, for instance, you know, we do blood draws and then we're able to hand those off, which saves lab time. And allows us to go door to CT, um, and it it all shapes the minutes uh, in there for you know throughout the course of the treatment saves a lot of brain cells. That's interesting about not having a CT scanner and not being able to drip the out to place. Um, do you actually have stats on how many hospitals in Montana don't, or facilities in Montana don't have a CT scanner or can drip or? I, I do not off the top of my head have the exact numbers. Um, the, the Mission Lifeline group over at uh, HA, they have a really wonderful website, montanastroke.org. Uh, and on that website, they have an interactive map uh, of the state. And you can go and you can hover over every facility in the state. And it will let you know, do they have a CT scanner? Do they have out the place capability? Uh, you know, and what those resources look like. Um, and they, you know, it's a really great interactive way to kind of take a look and a really good vision into um, the stroke system that, that we have set up. Are you sometimes having to do that research in real time or you know your facilities well enough that you deal with at this point that you know their capabilities? 
We know the facilities well enough. Uh, we know their capabilities. Uh, we know, you know, who um, who has staff on call. You know, if we're going to go there, what areas are designated um, as stroke centers, uh, and then you know are kind of able to make our determination from there. Uh, generally, by the air, there's really not a ton of decision making in our minds about where we're going to go. Um, our protocol allows us to go to uh, the closest appropriate facility, uh, appropriate facility being the closest facility that would have CT scanner and uh, all the place capability. Um, so we, uh, you know, we would go straight there at that point so that they can go ahead and get scanned. And then if they are a thrombolytic candidate, um, then they would get that at that point. So I think a couple of things about that that um, is interesting. So working in the stroke program in Bozeman, I think we both worked together to get this EMS to CT process going where um, we had the stroke alert, uh, the pre-hospital crew came in, they had the blood sugar, the um, labs were already drawn, the IV was in place, they already had a report with the last known well, and um they also had a glucose for us as well as a blood pressure. So that was really, really awesome information for us to have. And so we started crunching our numbers because like Steve said, that CAT scan is a definitive um, uh, test to see whether or not you can get thrombolytics. So you go to CAT scan to rule out whether or not it's a bleed that you have going on. If it's a bleed, you can't get thrombolytics. If there's not a bleed imaged on that CAT scan, then you may be a candidate for those thrombolytics, which can help bust the clot in your brain. Um, but we crunched the numbers. So the patients that came in via EMS got to CAT scan within three minutes. And then the patients that were coming in through our front door were more like about a 20-minute time frame to get to CAT scan. And when time is brain, that 17 minutes makes a really big difference. So I think that that is awesome. And again, another big plug to everybody out there. If you're having any sort of stroke-like symptoms, we can talk about the signs and symptoms here later. Um, call EMS. It gets you into the system a lot faster. And it's better to be safe than sorry. We always say to people that heart attacks hurt. So people get into the hospital right away with a heart attack. But strokes don't hurt. They're just kind of often you feel off or odd and a lot of people, especially in Montana, where we, we have a tough culture of ranchers, they like to tough it out. They'll go take a nap and wake up four hours later and realize they still have the symptoms and then get into the hospital and it's too late. So uh, call EMS. That's the take-home message there. But the other thing I want to chat with you a little bit about is um, it's kind of new on in our stroke world in Montana that we now have three facilities in Montana who are doing thrombectomy two in Billings and one in Missoula. And in bigger cities, there are often protocols where you can bypass um, primary stroke centers or centers that don't do thrombectomy and go straight for the centers that do have thrombectomy if a patient scores positive on a large vessel occlusion scale. So is there any talk about using that large vessel occlusion screening um, with Life Flight or EMS I guess it would be more lifelike because you could fly there to bypass, say, Bozeman because we don't do thrombectomy and get over to Billings because that patient might benefit from getting to Billings faster. 
There is talk about that. Um, we have a we have a state stroke committee that meets. Uh, it's made up of a group of us uh, from varying backgrounds: uh, EMS, uh, stroke nurses, uh, flight uh, physician. Uh, it's just it's a really good group um, that comes together and looks at you know some of the best practices. So now that we do have that capability in the state. Uh, there is discussion on that. We are working on a kind of a transport algorithm uh, in a destination protocol and what that looks like for stroke. Um, so we do do uh, we do do LBO tests uh, in the field, uh, the large vessel occlusion uh, tests out there. And we do look at that. So the one place that is kind of built in in that we're looking at going with the LVOs um, is primarily if it is greater than the four hours and outside of the thrombolytic window uh, at that point, then they may go directly to the thrombectomy center. The issue that we have is that we don't want to bypass a facility such as Bozeman, the primary stroke that has CT, has TPA, uh, and has the capability to get that CT and to get that initial administration done if needed mm-hmm. to go straight to the thrombectomy. If the distances were closer to the facilities that were doing thrombectomy from a lot of areas, um, that might be different, and I think that's why we see that in the urban world more than we do in Montana. Um, but, you know, I mean, a Bozeman to Billings flight, even by helicopter, you know, is close to an hour. So, again, you know, those are brain cells, you know, that are are going at that point. And with the majority of the stroke patients being, you know, clot and being candidates for lytics, it seems to be that the greater good at this point is to go to the nearest facility with the CT, with the thrombolytics, be able to administer those, and then the helicopter is able to stand by or whatever at that facility during that time, um, you know, especially if it's going to be a quick turnaround and then still be able to get the patient to the next facility uh, if they need to go for further care. Gotcha. Yeah, Montana is kind of unique in our big distances like that, so it does create quite a challenge. Um, So there's a lot. We kind of talked about Tenecteplace briefly, and there's a lot of hubbub right now about Tenecteplace. some of the smaller facilities around Montana have moved to it. I think that uh, Billings is moving to Tenecta Place. So you might be seeing a little bit of variation on Tenecta Place versus Alta Place. Would there, in your ideal world, like let's say five years down the road from here, in your ideal world, would it be that you guys could potentially administer Tenecta Place in flight and be flying that patient to Billings if they were, say, positive on a large vessel scale? Yeah, I think the, you know, the possibilities are endless. Um, a lot of it is just going to depend on, you know, what comes out of our clinical committees and our groups. Uh, we have a really pretty robust, uh, very smart group that gets together 
uh, and takes a look at all of the current research and the current practices uh, and evaluates what's going on, um, you know, how things are working with the smaller facilities that are uh, that have made the switch and that are utilizing it and going. Uh, we are definitely seeing that across the spectrum, uh, you know, where there's a nice variety of things that are being given. Um, and we constantly keep our, you know, our eyes out and then uh, report back our findings from, you know, the various stroke committees and, and different councils and things and uh, the different case reviews and stuff that we do um, to see what any challenges might be or possibilities. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think anything that benefits the stroke patient, um, in that case is definitely something worthwhile taking a look at, um, and, you know, just ensuring that it, it goes with best practice medicine. I really do think that you guys are up against a pretty big challenge with just dealing with so many different facilities. So there is some work out there to standardize, especially critical access hospitals with their stroke protocols. Um, but you probably see a lot of variation in practice throughout all the different places that you you fly from or fly to. So can you talk a little bit about your frustrations with the potential variations and your ideal outlook for how standardizing stroke care across all these different facilities that you work with would look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know that we have frustrations necessarily. I think we go into it very optimistically knowing that, you know, everybody and everywhere is, is different. It's medicine, you know, there's science and there's art. It's a nice blend. Um, and we understand that. So we are pretty, um, you know, open to, uh, being able to adapt when it comes to going to different places and having the the different uh, scales or the different systems that are set up. Thankfully, we have positions that are in place to be able to work very closely with all of the hospitals and the EMS agencies in our areas. Um, we yeah, attend the meetings. We help you know develop this stuff together as a system. Uh, and we just look at best ways to, uh, you know, to kind of exist and succeed together, you know, when it comes to the best outcome of the patient. Now, with that said, standardization is absolutely wonderful because then everybody's speaking the, sp the same language um, when it comes to that. Sometimes we may have to, you know, translate something that comes out, like if the terminology of you know, last known well is something different at, you know, facility X versus facility Y, um, you know, then we would have to go through and then figure out at facility Y what the, you know, the, the lingo that they're looking for that they're going to understand um, because communication to me in handoffs in stroke uh, is huge. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, as a, you know, a stroke nurse, I mean, the stories that, that come in, um, you know, it can be hard enough to get the information from a patient or a family member or, you know, really get a good detailed history of the current event. So sometimes that takes some detective work um, and the next person in the chain or somebody else may get a different story from, you know, a cousin or somebody that was on the phone with the individual um, and you start putting those pieces together. 
Well, then when we all get the information and it gets handed off from Hospital X to, you know, EMS to Hospital X, Hospital X to flight, flight to Hospital Y, uh, you know, along those lines, then it's kind of like the telephone game at school. Um, so I do think that it's very, very important um, to document and have it documented what was said, because in stroke care, like as as we know, you know, that that last known well is huge. And a 30 minute guess could be the difference in whether or not they're going to be a thrombolytic candidate or not. Um, which can be a huge deal down the road for them and, you know, their recovery and how that looks. So the documentation, the communication lies is huge. Um, you know, and on the communication line, I mean, again, just the involvement of everybody in the system working together, that is what creates a successful system. You cannot have EMS doing their thing, the hospital doing their thing people not talking to each other, people not practicing, people not drilling, um, you know, and sharing the processes that everybody used uh, because the hospital has to know what EMS is doing. The EMS has to know what the hospital's doing and what's to be expected in those later times um, in that course um, because every county is going to be different. Every city, every hospital system, every EMS, they're all going to be, they're all made different. Uh, you know, some are incredibly rural, some are a lot more, you know, urban, like metropolitan or become the micropolitan and, and all of these, in all of these different terms, um, they all have their challenges. And I feel that the leaders in those areas, like really just need to put their heads together and come up with a successful system that's going to benefit that patient outcome and decrease that out of hospital time getting that patient to tertiary care. Totally. You just, uh, I had a lot of thoughts that came up when you were just chatting about that. I, I love the um, analogy of telephone. It really is like telephone. And I'll find so often that I go into the room and I get one story and then the doctor goes into the room and gets a completely different story. And there's that kind of feeling of like, wait a minute, I don't want to be wrong, but it's not wrong or right. It's just sort of uncovering the facts. And sometimes you have to dig really deep for that. Um, and that last known well, just for the general public, uh, is so, so important because if you do have an ischemic stroke where there's that clot that gets lodged in a blood vessel in your brain, what happens is those vessels around that clot, as the stroke kind of progresses, those vessels start to get kind of leaky, like a sponge, I've heard it described. So the farther you out are, are out from that time when that stroke happened, the leakier your vessels are. So if you don't really have a clear last known well, and all of a sudden you're potentially giving out the place at six hours after your last known well, you're going to have leakier vessels and could be more likely to actually have a hemorrhagic or a bleed conversion. So um, the risk really increases the farther you are out from that last known well. And then just kind of talking about the communication I think that something that we could do uh, a better job of, too, is getting more information out to the general public about what they need to communicate, because they're a very important part of this report chain, this telephone report chain that we are talking about. So, Steve, what would you say to the general public if they could have three things ready for you when you get there? 
to just kind of start that report, what would those be? Yeah, I would say the the biggest thing would be uh, the on the onset, like when they were last known well, um, and you know, basically off the last known well being, you know, the last time that you saw the patient in their normal state, you know, whatever that is. So even if it was prior to going to bed, you know, last night at 11 o'clock, um, you know, that would be the last known well. And again, we talked a little bit about the detectiveness portion of it, you know, from our aspect, um, you know, I mean, let's say that you heard them get up and they went to the bathroom at three in the morning. And the symptoms that are presenting are, you know, left-sided weakness, they can't stand, you know, that sort of thing. Well, obviously, if that was going on at that point at three in the morning, you know, you probably would have heard them stumble into the bathroom, you know, or fall or whatever, because it wasn't working. Um, so any of those, those little things, you know, help piece things together. So I think that part um, is huge, you know, any kind of the stuff and not just the assumption of, you know, that's just them being, you know, them or, um, you know, I didn't think much of it, that sort of thing, um, that we find out a few hours later. So that would be one, um, two, you know, we talked about the public education. I think that, uh, prevention is always key when it comes to, you know, stuff in medicine, especially when it comes to, uh, stroke care with prevention, you know, comes the knowledge and the understanding of, risk factors uh, that are out there. So I think if the patient had any of those risk factors, uh, you know, that would be really beneficial um, to know as well. Um, and then, you know, lastly, especially if they're going to go by uh, EMS or, uh, you know, they're some other way, you know, if there is good contact information that can be given um, for, the reporting party so that as the patient progresses through the system, you know, if they go to various hospitals, they can be notified that they're being transferred to this hospital um, or further information can be gotten, you know, as the patient progresses through the system into different levels of care. So they may get to the hospital and then the physician wants to know something that might not have been asked. Um, or they get to consult with the neurology group and they want to know something different that we don't know. Then we're able to have that good information and that good historian, um, because as we know, stroke patients are not always excellent historians. Um, so that's where we really rely on those, you know, those loved ones and friends and stuff that are able to help provide that information. I think one other thing that I just thought about is uh, don't give any medications before EMS gets there. I My dad had a history of TIAs and strokes, and he actually collapsed in our front yard at one point. And our neighbor, who was just trying to help out and be a great guy, ran over and gave him an aspirin right away, which, you know, if he had had a bleed, probably wouldn't have been great. Um, that one ended up being, I think, a TIA and the aspirin was probably fine, but you don't know anything definitively until you get that CAT scan. So don't go to your own medicine cabinet before uh, the EMS crew gets there. Um, there's so many systems of care involved in this as we're talking, and you guys really do bridge a lot of the systems of care. So where are you seeing case reviews come out of or continuing education um, 
Is that usually initiated by stroke programs in the facilities that you're working with? Or do you guys ever initiate or do your own case reviews? It is, and we do. Uh, okay. All you know, all of our charts are uh, internally, uh, they go through a quality assurance, a quality improvement process. Um, there's varying layers depending on you know, what it is. Uh, we at uh, LifeLight Network, we do have a time-sensitive emergency uh, initiative that we looked at and started uh, a couple years ago now. Uh, and what that allows us to do is, you know, take a deeper look into some of the systems and then, you know, work with some of the more rural hospitals and stuff where, uh, you know, we know the patient's not going to be staying, right? They call us, they need to go. Uh, so we have systems built in where we can respond down. Um, they can let us know that it is, you know, a time-sensitive emergency. It's going to be a stroke alert. So at that point, they can request a hot load, for instance, you know, at their facilities, the helicopter would come in, it would stay running, it would stay hot, um, you know, and we've been seeing significant improvement in um, skid to skid times from when we land to when we take back off. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, five, five minutes, you know, I mean, patients loaded, gone, they've got everything packaged, it's all ready, um, you know, they've got all the paperwork. So again, it just decreases that out of hospital time to the, you know, the level that they need to, to be at. Um, so that's one of the initiatives. Um, we provide a lot of education to uh, varying groups uh, throughout the area uh, on, you know, stroke recognition, stroke treatment. Uh, we work with a lot of different stroke groups and um, systems on just ways, again, that you know, we can all blend together and we can use best practices that we've seen in, you know, maybe one system that may work over here in this system, um, you know, and just kind of help recognize the challenges that are faced and then collectively come up with solutions so that we are able to really minimize, you know, again, minimize that at a hospital time. And I will have to st say I thank you, Steve, because your um, involvement with our program is great and your whole crew is always there participating in our continuing education. Um, so we really appreciate the relationship that we have with your team and how engaged and involved you are. Um, and it's making me realize that we need to do more of this in the future and maybe try to get in some of our critical access hospitals at the same time just to bridge those gaps. Um, one one side note is, as well that I'd like to put in there, I had looked at some of uh, your notes from um, a previous podcast and just kind of thinking about things for future podcasts. And you talked about um, involving a patient's perspective, what it's like to be a stroke patient and have the team bring you to the hospital and then transfer you and what's their perception of everything that's going on. Cause you and I both know that when there's a stroke or a stroke alert, there is just a lot of hustle and bustle. And sometimes it's kind of easy to forget that this patient on your bed is a person. Um, and so like in the hospital, we'll often designate one person to just be kind of um, personal relations and translate what's going on with the medical team. But I would like to put a plug in for your crew because um, my dad did get flown by your crew down to Salt Lake at the time we were, were able to do thrombectomies and billings. So my dad got flown to Salt Lake by your crew. 
And he had this massive stroke, massive stroke alert going on. He was going down to Salt Lake for thrombectomy. And afterwards, when I talked to him, all he could talk about was how great the flight nurse was. They're like heroes. <laughs> so there's my personal story for you. Is that, uh, no, that's great to hear. I mean, and it definitely is. I mean, it's a perspective and it's a huge perspective because, I mean, the patient's the reason that we're there. And, you know, there's so many times that, like, I mean, we really emphasize the quality and just kind of the, you know, the experience. Nobody really wants to to meet us out there. You know, nobody wants to have a stroke or, you know, get on our helicopters and planes. And the frustration level that I can only imagine, you know, I mean, that these individuals would be having, um, you know, th their mind may be working, but they just can't talk. They can't express those things. And, you know, I mean, we know that to, to you and me, you know, I mean, the chaos of an emergency room and stroke and trauma teams and stuff like that. I mean, that's normal to us, but it's not normal to the majority. And, you know, it can be a scary thing. I mean, they've got a life altering event, you know, they may or may not be able to move certain parts of their body. They may or may not be able to speak or come up with words, but they know the words in their head. They're just not able to express them. And, you know, just that, that inability to, you know, communicate and the frustration and stuff like that. Um, you know, that level of comfort care, you know, on top of the clinical care, uh, it, it just, it has to be there, you know, for that optimal, um, experience in truly what can be, you know, a life-changing event for these individuals and their families. So not many of us actually get to see the behind the scenes in flight, um, scenario. So my question for you is I've been part of many handoffs and transfers for, um, you know, stroke patients going in a helicopter or a fixed wing to get a thrombectomy or um, neurosurgery somewhere. And it is always a little bit chaotic with the handoff and switching over pumps and medication. So my question to you is once you get into the flight and we get to see behind the scenes, is it generally pretty calm or what's going through your head in terms of what might be the worst case scenario with a stroke patient? Yeah, every, I mean, everyone is, is a little bit different. Um, we train a lot, uh, we practice a lot, um, you know, and we keep ourselves mentally and physically just available to, to act when needed. Um, you know, when it comes to the worst case scenario, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, I mean, any kind of delays or what gets me. Um, you know, because the, the patients need that, that transfer and that care, um, you know, and I mean, some of the logistics just of, of transport alone, you know, when it comes to, you know, weather or timing or, you know, things like that, um, come up and they're just things that we, you know, that we work with. Um, I don't really, I, I don't really feel that it is chaotic in any way. I mean, I'm sure people from the outside would think that it is, but uh, maybe it's controlled chaos. <laughs> uh, but I mean, for the most part, it, you know, I mean, we we're ready for it. You know, I mean, we're trained for it. We have the knowledge of it. We know how to treat it. We know what parameters we're, you know, looking to, to keep, um, you know, we know where we're going. We're providing that comfort care, you know, as well as the, the clinical stuff. Um, so I don't, I, I don't really feel that it's, it's chaotic. 
Um, but again, you know, I mean, from the outside, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and from the outside, it, it very could much appear that way, but it is very controlled um, and smooth and, you know, safe. It's both art and science, like you said. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Steve. I think our time is coming to an end here. So um, I think we should probably wrap it up unless you have any other pearls of wisdom to bestow upon us before we say goodbye today. You know, the only other thing that I can think about, um, you know, maybe back to our alt place first connect place thing. Um, you know, when it comes to the, all the places we know, it's a, you know, it's a waste-based dosing, um, that comes to there. And oftentimes, um, the, you know, and this would be for, you know, providers, nurses, uh, and facilities that we're picking up for. Um, but if we are, you know, it, one of the questions that we will always ask, um, is has the excess medication been taken out of the bile, uh, or is it still in there? Because varying places do it different ways. Um, personally, I think that, you know, the safest way is to figure out what the dose is, um, total that they're going to get out of it, um, and then draw out the extra and then waste it. Um, and then it just makes it a little bit smoother for us when we show up because we know 100%, you know, this is how much that patient's supposed to be getting. Um, cause as you know, it's very dialed in, like, I mean, they need to get it all. I mean, everything in the tubing, um, you know, and all of that. So when we go to swap ours out uh, we have a tubing connector that will hook up to the hospital tubing that will work with our pump um, and basically it, it it does not allow any waste um, out of any of the tubing um, so that will be a question that we ask like if possible I think it's a really good practice um, you know from reducing um, medication error risk you know and stuff like that to just get rid of the extra um, so that there's not any confusion on anybody's part and the patient gets exactly how much they need um, when it comes to that. Um, other than that, any other pearls? Um, as you had pointed out, I very much appreciate, you know, working and our team very much appreciates working with you guys um, over at Bozeman Health and all the drills that we have done together. Uh, I think the the evidence is there, you know, that it works um, based off of the numbers that you presented earlier when it comes to the door to CT and the handoff time. Uh, and ultimately the patient benefits, you know, from that, which is all of our, all of our goal in, in stroke care. Um, so we really appreciate that in the constant efforts and outreach to the community and, you know, education. And yeah, we just look forward to, to doing more and continuing to spread the good word about stroke. Yeah. Educate, educate, educate. That's our, uh, take home message for everybody reach out to all your different systems of care and get together because it's good on a personal level you get to know each other a little bit better and then when you are in that stress situation you've practiced you have um, a relationship to rely upon you have a little bit more trust with the people that you've practiced with and educated with so I do think that that's really important and it's a good reminder that um, we're due for some more education so we'll be reaching out but thanks again for joining us today. And you can listen to this podcast anywhere you like to find your podcast. So thank you. And we will hope to have you back again. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Piper. Bye, Steve. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart 
org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. A Huda Media Production.